You're listening to the Monday Christian Podcast, the program that helps you put into action the truth of God's Word that you hear on Sunday to your everyday life on Monday. And now, here are your hosts, Ezra Beyer and David Hartkopf. Well, hey there. Welcome to the Monday Christian Podcast for this first episode of 2023. Dave and I took well, I guess several weeks off, uh, just before Christmas, and then up until now, kind of to reflect, recalibrate, just kind of take some time off. Uh, both of us have been busy with work and extra things on the side as well, so just taking some time to reset. Got a great lineup, though, coming up this year, and we lead off today with Jim Belcher. And Jim Belcher, he's a political philosopher, researcher, writer. And I first came across him when Dave recommended me his work, uh, Deep Church, back, and he wrote that back, I think it was around 2009. And then from there, he's written several books uh, since then, three books in total. And his last one, uh, most recently, is Cooled Civil War. And one of the fascinating things, I've just been thinking about this the last several weeks or so, especially, is just the, the, how do we talk to, especially as Christians, how do we talk to one another, especially with those that we disagree with? How do we have effective conversations? And it seems like, this has just been my observation, uh, that a lot of times we kind of put each other in different camps. And if I don't, you know, if I'm talking to another Christian and they don't speak the same language that I do, it's a little bit different, or they, they use different uh, terminology around specific hot button topics, we tend to just write those people off. And it's unfortunate. And what it ends up doing is it kind of creates this divide between um, left and right Christians, right? More conservative or or more liberal Christians, right? And as, as a result, then we have camps that don't talk to each other. And this happens in so many different ways. And one of the things I'm passionate about, especially this year with the guests that we bring on is how can we break down this divide? And so that's why we'll continue to feature different guests that have varying viewpoints that um, you may agree or disagree with. And along with that, I'm going to try to bring on uh, more uh, personal voices that are voices of people that maybe they aren't authors, they haven't um, done anything notable that's in the news per se, uh, but they're everyday Christians that are living out their faith. And so you'll get to hear a number of those voices as well this year. So anyways, uh, Dave and I sat down with Jim Belcher. Here's that conversation. Our guest on the podcast today is Jim Belcher, and he's a political philosopher, researcher, and writer. Prolific writer, written some great books, Deep Church. You haven't got got a copy of that yet. Uh, That's how kind of Dave got me on to Jim's uh, and fantastic book. Written a recent book, though, called Cold Civil War. And so, Jim, uh, joining us from Pasadena, California today, today. welcome, and uh, thanks for joining the Monday Christian Podcast. Guys, it's great to be here. Yeah, well, thank you. And um, it's I, I'll just confess, I'm newer to your, uh, to your writing, and uh, your writing has been refreshing and helpful. And specifically for this, um, for this perspective, is that at the Monday Christian, we try to bring on people of different uh, viewpoints. And whenever you do that, you start to make people unhappy a little bit. And you are willing to go into <laughs> the deep water, so to speak, and have conversations with people of differing beliefs. And so I just appreciate that. And that's one of the reasons we wanted to bring you on today. Great. So, yeah. Well, let's go back in time. Yeah, I always like to ask this question. It's about the most elementary that there is, but it, sometimes it just helps our audience. Um, how did you first come to faith in Christ? I grew up in a, in a Christian home. So, but you know, there was always a point where you have to make it your own. Um, and, uh, I, I, my sister was a little older who I really admired and still to this day do brought uh, my brother and I on a, like a weekend retreat with the church. Um, we weren't really plugged in at the time to the junior high or high school. And, um, they, we, you know, as so often was done in the, in the, in the late seventies, early eighties, we were introduced to the four spiritual laws. Um, and we were just given an opportunity to accept Christ and confess our sins and our need for a savior. It was really basic. It's that campus crusade, little four spiritual laws, or I guess it's crew today, they call it. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's how it was. But you know, it, it's somewhat formulaic, but the Holy spirit used that powerfully. I knew at that moment that I had I had confessed Christ and that I was saved and that I was going to heaven. And I, it was almost, you know, a, 
days of euphoria following that. The, ch the challenge I had, even growing up in a, in, a, in a really sound church, was not being really well discipled. Um, and then just kind of getting back, you know, into junior high and high school and, and kind of going through the, the grinder there. Um, and it really wasn't until I, I, I was so desperate to grow that I responded to the little tiny print print on the back of the booklet and said, for more information, write to crew. And I did. And they started sending me these things called transferable concepts. They were little Bible studies that kind of decide there was like 10 of them, I think. And I just took each one as they came every month and I worked through every scripture reference and took notes and I just kind of self-discipled myself. Uh, I think by then I was in ninth grade and just hungry. And most people saw such a transformation in my life at that point. They assumed that's when I had become a Christian. That's when I was saved. Even though it had happened three years before, I just didn't have the discipleship. Um, and so I've always been I've always had a passion for the church, for discipleship in the church, and particularly the Christian mind. Early on, I was reading Bonhoeffer. I read Harry Blumeyer's book, the, the Christian Mind, and he talked about how the church, even by the 1960s, had lost the Christian mind. Um, and so that has always been a major part of, of my life, starting right from when I was discipling myself. And then eventually the church came along and I went to a Christian college eventually and they, they helped. But a lot of the times I had to, a lot of the time I had to do it by myself. Mm. I wonder you, sometimes. I, go ahead, Dave. No, I was just going to ask him. So one of the things that we we talked about be, before the podcast was just your your passion and also just the fact that you also planted a church. And were some of the your passions for discipleship sort of the impetus behind the church planning? And of course, you talk in deep church about some of the kinds of things that were going on at Redeemer. But yeah. was that passion? for oh, church yeah. planning sort of birthed in this discipleship model. And did you, did you feel like in your church plant, there were, was it a lot of transplants or were you discipling a lot of people like from ground zero? Yeah. That, that question, a little, a little bit of both. Um, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I was a political studies major at, as an undergrad and then eventually went to seminary to get a theological foundation and then on for a PhD in political philosophy. So that's my training. While I was working on my dissertation back in California, because I had gone to Fuller Seminary, um, I, I, I was just so frustrated with the churches. They were, they were a mile wide and an inch deep, as Chuck Swindoll used to say. Um, and I, it just was frustrating. So I just started inviting some of the leaders, some of the more mature people up to our, we lived up in kind of the foothills of above Pasadena and built a roaring fire. And we would just, let's just talk about the Christian faith. And I felt like that people in their 20s were so hungry for that, that it just grew. And the next thing, within a year, we had a ministry of a couple hundred, 20, we called it 20-something fellowship. And we just had this huge ministry. And I wasn't even on staff. And I, I had to postpone my dissertation for a year or so just because it had grown into a small church. We had community groups. We had outreach. We had missions projects. We had, yeah, I mean, it was just crazy. So when that time at Lake Avenue ended, when I didn't feel like there was a, I could go any further with the church there. I felt my wife and I felt called to the PCA. We had been listening to a lot of Tim Keller, the pastor redeemer, New York. And we felt this like hunger to start a church because there just weren't any, we couldn't find these churches. So we said, let's just start one. I was tired of criticizing the church and just being a, a critic. And I said, well, let's at least start one. And wow. then if it doesn't work, we can keep our mouth shut the rest of our lives and say, <laughs> you know, but so we just started it Good. and that's, that's what happened. Um, and we found a good, a really solid denomination and a good group. And, and I, the deep church is really the book about that church plant. Mm. You know, it's, it's funny because I was just talking to another pastor out in California uh, two weeks ago, came from a drug background and, you know, yeah, I, I forget his last name, but I think it was Jim was, uh, I was, I was interviewing him and uh, I'm spacing on it right now, but started a backyard Bible study. It grew to 200 people, right? In a relatively short amount of time, he becomes a pastor and is pastoring today. Was there something that was going on in the 90s, thousands? Like, it seems like I've heard several of those stories that are kind of like organic. People kind of got frustrated with how church was done and then something sprung up. I'm just curious about that. Yeah, that's a great sociological question. I mean, I, I what we found in Los Angeles, because it was the, the first group, the 20-something group was in Pasadena, is that... I think young people were so disconnected. They were just so hungry for community and being together and talking meaningfully about the faith, um, fellowshipping together, but really hungry for, for truth. I mean, I, 
I had gone to seminar and I was working on a dissertation, but I, I probably was just throwing at them really pretty high level intellectual stuff. And, and uh, they were eating it up. I mean, we, we would have these large, we'd have 200 people in the audience. We'd have these large Socratic conversations where I would, I would teach for about 10 minutes and then I would open it up for about 20, 30 minutes of just conversation in this big group. Um, it got pretty crazy at times, but I had learned Socrat the Socratic method at Georgetown because I had a Jesuit priest who loved loved hmm. it. And, um, and, and then we would close, then we would break, I would close that section up and then we would go into small groups and even discuss and go deeper. And people were just, they were hungry, you know, and my passion has always been since I referenced when I was, you know, 16 and going through those transferable concepts is just helping people understand the Christian life, hmm. the depth of it, the beauty of it, the grace of it, um, and just how incredible it is. And so if you look at my books, you know, the first one, was born out of that church plant. Um, and it, it, you know, deep church was to help explain a philosophy and ministry for people wrestling with the church. And it was right during the, all the, the, the emerging church trends that were going on. And then my second book, when I took my family to Europe was really to help the, the Christian understand their place in the larger Christian story. So it was a little more individualistic, although I rooted it in a family structure because my family, and then the third book is really to help people think about, the outward, right? It's, it's how do they think about being a citizen and, and, a, and an American in this country? And what does that, what does that look like as we try and live our lives with other people outside of the church? Um, and so they're, they're almost, it's almost a trilogy. I mean, I'm probably right. almost done with that, but I still have more I want to write, but, but it, it does come out of a desire to help disciple people and have them think Christianly about all of life. It's funny when I was reading deep church, now I'm, I'm reading it in 2023, right? And so you go back to 2009, and there's different points where I told David this. I said, "You're reading this, and then you can see, you know, some of the some of the trends that are about to emerge." And you're like, "Oh man, you know, this certain group is going to need this message, and they didn't listen to it." <laughs> and then you know, you can you can almost see the the warning signs coming, right? Um, how much has the con and this kind of leads into what I wanted to get into in our conversation here? How much has the conversation shifted? And since you wrote Deep Church, could you have those same Socratic conversations today like you did those years ago? I, I think maybe on certain subjects, yeah, you probably can. Yeah, you know, the ones true. that are, are not going to uh, send off alarm bells. I think there's, there's a chapter in there on culture that would really be difficult to have. I think there's a chapter, the postmodern chapter on, on truth might be difficult to have. Um, but, but probably the one on culture is the most, the most difficult, you know, as I have a chapter in, in cold civil war on how divided the church is and how polarized the church has become. And it, it has become really, really difficult to have these conversations, obviously. Yeah. I mean, as Dave, we've talked about this, it's, cr it's crazy over the last couple of years, right? Yeah, it, it's cr pretty crazy. And there's, I think there's a lot of folks that really have a vested interest. I mean, you kind of talk in deep church and then the cold civil war about sort of like this third way that you're trying to always you're getting people to think christianly about about everything and and um but there are folks that have vested interests in certain tribes you know and so they they have if you have power like you have every reason not to have somebody come through and say hey we should really be more ecumenical and work with people about this or hey let's find common ground we were just we had some people on campus this week and he was mentioning a vote on religious freedom, maybe from the 90s. It was like a, introduced by a Democrat, uh, Chuck Schumer, um, 97 to 3, it passed uh, the Senate, I think. And just to imagine anything <laughs> passing 97 to 3 in the Senate, he's like, our, our culture is very polarized. Um, and so as, as in, in our show note, he, he asked this third way thing. Isn't this, this, is this a myth? Is this like the white rhino that we all kind of aspire to see someday? But um, I, what gives you hope when you start thinking about some of these things? Maybe that's a good way to start. Yeah, I was, I was even rereading sections of Cold Civil War this morning to prepare. And I, I do talk about the struggle with, with being hopeful that, that there can be a new vital center where both sides could come together um, where the American project could continue. And it seems to get harder and harder every day. 
uh, to hold on to that hope. So, I, I mean, what gives you hope is ultimately the gospel that revival can happen in any generation, uh, that the church can be renewed in any generation, uh, that that spark can happen, um, that, that people can re recover the whole idea of constitutional republicanism. I mean, it's in short supply right now, um, but, it, but it can be recovered. But, you know, and you don't know what could do it, what could spark it. Um, and, and if there's not a, almost, you know, I, I think at one point in the book, I say something like, you know, even if, even if we split in half and we go red and blue states and the, we completely lose the Republic, whoever want, whoever restarts this project and wants to regain the constitutional Republic that we once had as flawed as it was, is going to need a roadmap, you know, and in some ways I'm, I'm just writing that roadmap to say, this is what it could look like. This is what we could do even if it gets worse from here, um, I would say, you know, as I wrote that book, probably finishing up in 2021 in the spring uh, before, you know, this long publishing tale, it takes forever, you know, right to get out. I, I read it and I still think it's prophetic and where what's happening, but I, I think it's three, two, three, four times X worse today than even when I wrote it. Yeah. We just continue to get further and further apart. Um, and if you think about what's coming out at, out of Davos, Switzerland right now, and, I don't know if you follow anything at the World Economic Forum, but what they have planned for the human race, I mean, and these are some of the most powerful, wealthy people on, on the planet, what they have planned for us is just outright scary. Um, and if the church doesn't wake up and, and start training its people to have a Christian mind when it comes to artificial intelligence, when it comes to transhumanism or posthumanism, when it comes to economics, when it comes to sexuality, we're going to wake up and we're going to find ourselves in a situation where it's just too late. And if anybody studied Bonhoeffer, anybody knows how quickly the frog can get heated in the kettle and how fast totalitarianism can grow before we notice it, it's just too late. Um, I think the church in Nazi Germany woke up and realized, man, we've got to speak up for the Jews. But by then it was probably way too late and there wasn't much they can do unless they all wanted to end up in the concentration camp. So they, they remained silent. So uh, I, I just think that, yeah, I am hopeful, but the time is getting is getting very short. So you mentioned I, I something. Let's just go back real quickly, though, because I think setting the scene for audience, you, you mentioned in the intro that in the past couple of decades, Americans have been fighting, you know, a culture war. Can you give us a brief synopsis of this culture war? What's got us to this point right now where there's the, the cold civil war? Yeah. You know, it was, it was really highlighted by James Davison Hunter at University of Virginia, who wrote the book Cult, or Culture Wars, I think way back in the 80s. So it's 25, 30 years old. And he said this is all this is a, a this is a fight over uh, over what he called authority. Um, what's the ultimate authority? So I call it grounding. Um, I, I call it natural law grounding. Um, what is it that where do we get our sense of truth and justice? Where do our ideals come from? How do we plan our lives together? What do we value? Um, how, do we, how do we figure out conflict? How does the Supreme Court make decisions? How do our politicians make decisions? It, it all comes from an understanding of truth or a narrative, we might say, and it's a grounding. And Hunter said that there were two major camps all the way back. I've split it into four groups, but he had two. And he said, you have the secular one that does not believe in any transcendent truth or any grounding. Everything, all of reality can just be created out of thin air. And then you had the other side, the non-progressive side that believed in a grounding and a transcendent truth. And these two groups have been warring. Um, and what we've seen is that divide has just gotten even bigger between those who, who do believe that our common life together has to be grounded on something. Um, and particularly, you know, for, for Christians, it's it's the fact that the image of God is in all people. So human life is yeah. very valuable. That's going to shape the way we look at life. Uh, it's the it's the truth and the hope of heaven so that we don't try and create utopias on earth and kill tens of millions and hundreds of millions of people like the 20th century saw because they wanted utopia on earth. Uh, there's all those types of groundings, right, that come that come into it. And we've We've really not only in the political realm, but obviously in the personal ethical realm, we've completely blown those out of the water. Um, it, there's been a, a you know a massive you know 50 year generational war on grounding on truth, and on our on how God sees the world, and it's we're starting to reap the consequences of it, not just politically, but but just individually, um, in 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 our culture as it's lost its it's completely lost its moorings. Um, mm. and, and that's, to me, that, 
it, that's a failing of the church. I think the church has just, even though the church has focused for decades on worldview and the Christian mind, they didn't, it, they just didn't take it far enough. Um, they didn't understand that that has to impact gender and sexuality. It has to impact political economy. It has to impact monetary systems. It has to impact how we think about war. All those were kind of ignored. And we had this kind of, you know, even in the reform tradition, which is my tradition, we had very limited view of what that meant. And now we've lost generations of people who, who they don't even care. I mean, you look at the studies of young people and if you ask them, is it okay for governments to use authoritarian or totalitarian ways to get the other side to do what they want? They're like, sure, absolutely. It doesn't matter anymore. There, there's no understanding of, of the rule of law that we've had that, have, that has really animated our country for decades that made us different. Now it's just pure power. It's yeah. Nietzschean, you know. You guys, well, you, you even notice it in, to to a small degree just this week, right? Dave and I are hockey fans, and there was a, a hockey player, Philadelphia Flyers. I think it was even Provorov, and yeah. he chooses not to wear a pride jersey onto the rink, right? In a warm up um, session, not. It was just a very right minor right. thing, right? Well, and so you go back. I think Ed Stetzer he posted a thing, and I think I'll, I'll be on uh, Fuller next week, and so I think Ed will be there. But he posted a thing of, well, 2009, where were we at? We were, well, why can't we just accept, right? But today, it's if you don't accept, we're going to take your job. And essentially, many sports commentators essentially said, if that person doesn't go out, Provorov doesn't go out and warm up, if people like him don't do that, uh, they should be fired. The team should be fined a million dollars and so forth, right? Some commentator actually ad advocated for him. He, so he's been uh, in the States since a since he was a child. But I think originally either his parents or he was from Russia. Yeah. And they, they, they sort of advocated for him to go back right, and right. from where he came. Right. Which that, that's just another level of. That's just a, another level of tribalism and rhetoric that I don't think that you would have saw, even like as mentioned. If you would have put another issue right with that, that would have been the most. That that, that is an extremely racist comment to make, right? But 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 when when you know when it's couched in something that that is you know I don't want to go too far down that rabbit trail, but it just shows how much. Yeah, yeah. Things have no, shifted. that's exactly right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I one of the chapters in in Cold Civil War, I talk about how the. That particularly on the left, there, there are people on the right. So like the left libertarians that are on the right, I talk about that, but particularly on the left, those who really wanted a godless constitution. So when I was growing up, it was, they were the, the kind of the left or the secularists just wanted to get Christianity out of the public realm. They wanted a naked public square. They didn't want any, any influence of Christianity at all. And they were kind of, they, they said they wanted a neutral square, right? So that all views could be, could present. And Christians were always saying, yeah, but if you do that, then there is no grounding in law anymore. There's no grounding in truth and look out. So now what's happened is that as that naked public square has become a reality, the so-called neutrality is not neutral, right? And so now it's taken on its own authoritarian way of about it, right? And so the, those who are saying that Christians were theocrats, Christians were oppressive, have now gained the power. They're the establishment. They have captured every major cultural instant, cultural, political, and economic institution. And now they're going to force on the minority, whatever it is that their narrative is. And if you yeah, don't like yeah. it too bad yeah. and that Christians would have been warning and saying there, there is no naked public square. It will be, it will be filled with, with something and mm -hmm. some sort of a religion. And so that's what we're, that's what we're seeing. And it's an intolerance, right? So tolerance leads to intolerance, a, an open society, completely open with no foundations, will lead to a closed society. Right. And we've got a very closed society now where you talk to college professors, even on the left, who would consider themselves classical liberals. They are too afraid to speak up or say anything controversial in class yeah. because they could lose their jobs. Um, yeah, Bill, and they're wondering. Bill, yeah. Bill Maher, I think, is he he was sort of sort of a. The, sh the shock jock of the early mid 2000s, you know, sort of a darling on the left. And now he is he's getting slowly eaten as he comes out and sort of now pokes fun at people on the far left mm -hmm. that, you know, he in his estimation have sort of lost their minds about a lot of these cultural issues. Mm -hmm. um, and and like you said, this this shift has been has been pretty yeah. quick. Very Jim, fast. I, 
I guess what there's a lot of different routes we can go. We could get frustrated at culture and just say, you know, throw up our hands and get kind of get discouraged. I think the biggest thing that's on my mind these days is how do Christians come together, not to fight culture, but to um, actively um, share, advance the kingdom and share the good news with culture and be a light in the culture. And one of the troubling trends, I think Dave and I have both thought about the last several years is the growing divide that seems to take place in particularly American Christians. Uh, often it comes down to political lines, so forth. I'm going to pull up a graphic here. Sorry for those of you that are listening online, but there's order left, top left, order right, top right, freedom left, bottom left, and then freedom right, uh, bottom right. Can you just walk, I'm going to pull it down here in a second, but can you just walk us through a little bit? Um, this kind of forms a little bit of the framework of your book. Can you explain what this quote unquote, maybe new way, this third way potentially could, could look like for uh, bridging this gap? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I was, when I was writing the book, I, I mean, it was, politics is very complicated and very difficult to explain uh, to people because um, there, there's a whole history, there's a whole language, there's a tradition behind it, particularly for, for political philosophy. And uh, as I talk about, I, you know, I kind of stumbled upon this quadrant. So instead of the typical left, right, you know, the, the, the left right. is on the left, the right is on the right spectrum. I realized that there, there, there's actually two sides to each um, side. So when you look at the left, there's an order part and then there's a freedom part. So there's a part of the left that just wants complete libertine freedom, right? They don't want anybody telling them what to do morally, culturally, politically, anything. But there's also an order side where they've become very, you know, the socialist uh, side where they want to regulate everything, including speech and thought and religion. Right. So that's a little bit about what we've been talking about, particularly with the Flyers hockey player. Right. He can't he doesn't have the freedom of speech to say what he wants. Not anymore. And he has to have it, it has to be ordered now. And the same thing is on the right. There's a freedom side and there's an order side. Um, and there's the freedom side, like the libertarians and those who are almost mimic the left and they don't want any divine or supernatural view of truth. But then there's the order side that tends to be the more traditional family oriented that says there has to be order in life. And so I, I look at those. And what I say is in the book is that, you know, and I break each of the four quadrants into three positions. So starting from the center of that quadrant and going out. Um, out on the out on the far corners of each quadrant, right, are the threes. The twos are kind of in the middle, and then the one is in the middle, right. And so, as people can see, if they can see this, the threes are the most extreme, and the twos where the can go either way. The twos can lean in or they can lean out. Uh, oftentimes, they've provided a bridge to the third, but we be, we're being drawn and quartered out by the extremes. Um, and I know there's people on the left that don't like to hear that and on the right who don't like it, but that's really what's happening. And then the, the ones in the middle, uh, both on the left and the right, because I, I wanted to pull people in who were who, on the left who still believed in constitutional republicanism and, and on the right, the ones form the new vital center. Um, and so one, in one sense, it is a third way and that the two sides are wrong and it's the center um, and it's not a, see, the, the biggest thing I want to point out is people hear the word center and they uh, they hear, you know, mushy middle or they moderate. hear bipartisan moderate. It, it's actually not a moderate center at all. It's extremely radical, which is why the four sides don't like it. So I just happened to use the phrase new vital center because I was going off of a book that came out in the late 40s called The Vital Center that at one time it's where Republicans, and Democrats could work together in our country. Um, and so I just called it a new vital center. But I think that's confused a lot of people because when they see it, they realize, wow, this is this is really rooted in a transcendent truth. Um, and so it's 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 kind of radical in a, in a sense. And it's getting it back, getting us back to the roots. I'm struggling. To, I'll just be honest. I'm struggling to wrap my mind around it. And so just just the, the, the breakdown. So what exactly are you, I guess, calling people? towards is it, it it's not a moderate mushy center so I'm yeah talking maybe a little yeah bit it's a it's a it's it's a re it's almost a recovery of what our founders had but then applied to today right so it's the best insights of the last say 250 years where it's it's you know you think about the 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 thing that we want to get back to so what is another way of looking at the center is a glue that holds us together so what is the glue 
that's supposed to hold Americans together? What is the common thing that they have, right? What is it and what is it that keeps pulling us apart? Well, if, every, if everything is power and it's interest politics, then we're going to continue to hate each other and pull, pull each other apart, depending on what that vision looks like. But if, if the center in, on that grid is a constitutional republicanism that holds us together, then we need to know what that is. We need to know what is the rule of law and how does it balance order and liberty perfectly to allow the majority and the minority to live together uh, and not just the, the majority who's got the power and then dictates to everyone else. And our, that's what our country has been trying to do from the very beginning is how in the world do we live together when there are minority voices don't, that don't feel represented and how do we make sure their voices are heard in a respectful way that we all that we all can stay together? What's happened now is that it's all power. As I said, it's all power politics pulling us in four different directions and the minority voice, which now happens to be is going to be Christians. But but tomorrow it could be LGBT. It could be blacks. It could be Latinos. It could be whites. Whoever it is gets trampled underfoot because there's no rule of law anymore. And so it really is a quest to get back to the things that make the American experiment the most incredible experiment in political theory that the world has ever seen. Once we lose it, all chaos breaks loose and we're just in a civil war again. And so how do we get back to that place where all people and all views are protected and no side is trampled? It's interesting that the left for years thought that the Christian right was trampling on everybody's views. Now they're in power and they want to trample on everybody's views who don't believe. Well, neither one is correct. And what is it that allows us to, to not do that and to, to actually live together? Um, and there has to be some grounding there that allows us to do it. And so the book is really an attempt to, to push to say, these are the ones that don't work. This is what's pulling us apart. And this is what could actually bring Americans back together again. As you've thrown these ideas out to white communities, uh, whether it's minority, African-American, what's the responses you've received from different communities? Um, embrace, pushback? Uh, I mean, the, I, I was telling you guys this when we talked earlier this week that the, that the left generally doesn't want to dialogue with these things at all. Um, and, so, and just to clarify, but the left, you mean like uh, left, like liberal Christians as well or left as in? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so really secular. anybody who's, you know, left of center on that on that grid who who's, you know, so what's happened is I think we've become so tribal, you guys. Right. That the minute we hear something that is coming from the other tribe or may sound like the other tribe, we immediately reject the whole thing. Right. So, uh, you know, a good example of this is immigration. Immigration used to be a Democrat position. It was a big labor union position. We've yeah. got to limit immigration in order to protect the working class and particularly blacks, but also Hispanics as they were growing. Because if you don't, the wages get driven lower and lower and lower as more cheap labor floods across the border. And so that was a Democrat issue. That was a Bernie Sanders issue up until about 10 years ago. And there was always a more of a libertarian Republican issue to have open borders, cheap labor for the business class, so forth and so on. Well, now, you know, so but but I think there's a very strong Christian natural law, natural right view of of immigration that we need to talk about. But if you even bring it up and someone is on the left, hears that as a Trump idea, they immediately write you off. You're unsafe. I don't want to talk with you. It's, it's the same thing. You take an issue like yeah, vaccines, yeah. right? Vaccines were Trump's idea initially, right? It was a Republican idea. But as soon as Biden got in there, it became the Democrat thing. And now you, you've, got, you've got this massive divide. It, and ironically, Trump is still pro-vaccine, but all the other the people who don't want the vaccine now, but still get, get, get ostracized. So we're, it's so tribal right now that it's right, just very difficult right. to have the conversation. And all I want to say is what I try to do in the book is saying, listen, both sides, listen carefully. We're being ruled by a ruling elite or what I call an oligarchy. The oligarchy hates constitutional republicanism, republicanism because it gets in the way of their power and particularly their economic power and their amassing of wealth. And I think both sides, we're so busy attacking one another that we're missing the bigger picture. And the bigger picture is that our overlords, the ruling elite, the people who control all the multinational corporations are doing whatever they want. 
and we're not paying attention to what they're saying over at Davos because they are just telling us what's coming. And they're telling us they're gonna, we're going to be we're going to be ushered into a certain kind of a city. We're going to be controlled. They're going to have uh, in artificial intelligence. They're going to have all kinds of mRNA vaccines for us. They're telling us this. And the it, church is not listening because we're caught up in these petty, this theater that goes on in D.C. to raise money, not realizing that there's Republicans and Democrats who are controlling the ruling elite. We're not paying attention. There's an old line, right? If you want to um, know what a person believes, uh, what a, I'm butchering the line, but uh, if you want to know what a person believes, just listen to what they say or something something to that regard. Like actually yeah. listen to what, what they're yeah, saying. Absolutely. Listen to what they're saying. Yeah. And, and, and here's what's interesting. I, I remember reading a book when I was doing my master's several years ago, and it was like trends, you know, it was, it was like um, cutting edge evangelism. I'm giving it a bad title, but the book was from like 20 years ago, right? <laughs> I'm reading this. I'm like, what are we even talking about? Right? Because it was so far, far behind the times i don't th and this is a point i've brought up sometimes i think to no avail but i i think so one of the i work as a freelance writer so i work with a lot of business clients many of whom are engaged in ai and the technological trends over the next um 10 20 years you think it's been fast the last 10 years the acceleration and Again, you can tell me if I'm off base here, but this is the way I would see generally the trends going. It can stop, you know. There's there's different things that happen, but I th I think generally the trend is going where we want more of an integration. Right now, I got my phone, bam, it's here, and but there's still a disconnect. Well, what happens, right? And Elon Musk has talked about this. What happens when you know? It sounds like conspiratorial conspiracy based but it's not what happens when this chip right is up here and we're able to tap into that data bank things like that. And, and essentially, everything becomes seamless. You walk into your home, we have Alexa now, but it becomes even more seamless, right? Every, everything is integrated where there's, it's almost like digital people, right? It, it, it's just in, in the lines between that and then the questions of sexuality, uh, the questions of digital and the questions of what it means to be human um, are going to be incredibly blurred. And, and what I hear you saying is, you know, <laughs> if you don't deal with this now, how can you expect to deal with it when you know uh, it, it almost becomes you, you arrive at that tipping point? But I mean, That's I right. guess I mean, it's, it, yeah. yeah, you spot on. It's going to be too late. I mean, you guys have probably seen the movie Gattaca that came out like twenty plus years ago no, with Ethan Hawke, no. and they were talking about test two babies back then, and and it's a great movie. It's worth watching, but it, it was science fiction right. twenty five years ago, whereas now. You're going to, we are so close to having designer babies. And what happens when you can use the mRNA, the CRISPR uh, invention in order to develop the kind of baby you can pick its height, you can pick its strength, its eye color, its intelligence. You're going to be able to choose all of that. And what happens when we don't just have iPhones that are generation one, two, three, and four, but we start having children that are generation one, two, and three as this is allowed? Mm. There's all kinds of ethical ramifications yeah. that are yeah. going to mess. And if you, Listen to what the, as you were saying, the high tech people have been saying for, for decades now is that they're after immortality and absolutely and, and wanting to upload our consciousness into the computer realm, right? So that's the long term goal because they want to live forever. Um, yeah. And some of them, I think Elon has done the same thing as, you know, their bodies are all putting, are going to be put into cold storage, hoping technology will catch up to it. So then they can then be uploaded in, into, um, in, into the cloud. But the whole goal is to move beyond the body, move beyond the gender, move beyond sex and biology, and so that we don't need those things anymore. So this is what's the, it, it's called post-humanism or transhumanism, and it's coming. But you know who should be the one standing the most against this? The church, because we have a creator who created in a binary way with men and women from the very beginning, and he put the image of God in us and the spirit in us, and we should be the ones who are figuring this out and saying, no, you talked a little bit earlier about, you know, we don't want to just get into culture and get depressed. I think there's, let me transition to this because we could go down this, this tack for a while. I would say this, the Bible calls us to be salt and light. The light part is the prophetic light. It's the pushback part. It's the Romans 12, one and two. We will not be pushed into the mold of the world, right? We're not going to be pushed. We got to teach our people not to be pushed into the mold. In order to do that, they need to think critically. They need to get the Christian mind. They need to understand. But Paul also says, by the renewing of your mind, 
And Jesus says we also need to be not just salt, but uh, not just light, but salt. As our minds are renewed, then we become the ones that create the new culture. We become the one, not, not exclusively, because we know that non-Christians cr can create wonderful culture, but we're the ones that are putting forth truth and beauty and goodness and community and churches. And we're developing healthy you know, children who, who understand how, how to live life. You know, I, 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 always, I said I would never do this, but it is interesting how much The Matrix keeps coming up, the movie <laughs> The Matrix, right? I That's mean, what I was thinking about earlier. Yeah, I mean, are we becoming Zion? You know, do we have to form a resistance, right? But, but the church should be the primary place where we are raising families and children that not only know how to push back, but know how to create truth, beauty, and goodness and live it out. And there yeah. is still a way to do that. And that's where Christians should be coming together. Let's agree that there are forces greater than us trying to control things. They're using theater, political theater, to distract us and get us to hate each other. Let's agree on that. And then let's work together to create such strong communities and people that they will resist what's coming um, and be aware of what's coming before, before it's there. Jim, you mentioned earlier when I asked you, to, you know, what's the hope? And you just you said, oh, well, obviously, you know, first and foremost, it's the gospel. And then you, you kept talking for a while. But I think in your book, Deep Church, the the chapter that was the most compelling to me was the chapter on the gospel. And I just wondering if you would if if because I think it's like a buzzword, right? Like the gospel, you know, the gospel. What to, in your in your understanding what is the gospel? What is the good news? Yeah, the good news that, that when Jesus announces his kingdom, you know, so it's, it's kind of primarily how we're saved, right? So we believe in this thing called this order that God has put into his, into his creation. We also, we, our conscience knows there's an order and we know when we break it because our conscience tells us when we're breaking God's law. Even non-believers know that. They get a guilty conscience. They can kill the conscience, but it's still there. It still rumbles underground. And, and it doesn't, the general revelation or the natural law that's out there, like a gravity, doesn't tell us what to do with that guilt. It's only the gospel that tells us that, that we've fallen short of the glory of God. We've fallen short of what he wants for us. We've put ourselves at the center of the universe and our needs. And, and we know that, and, and we're, we're racked by guilt until we accept what Christ has offered, the perfect sacrifice on the cross, his life for our life, where, where he imputes his righteousness to us so that when God looks at us, he sees Christ and he sees someone who is, stands not guilty before him um, and who has new life. But when we get that new life, we're not only, we don't only get a passport to heaven and eternal life and and forgiveness from our heavenly father, but we get a whole new way of looking at life. We get new glasses that go on us. We get the scriptures. We get this desire to serve him, right? So we're adopted into his family. We not only get his name, but we get all the rights and the responsibilities to live for him and to be an ambassador for him. And being an ambassador is telling people, here's where you go with your guilt. Here's what you do. Here's where salvation and forgiveness is. But man, look at this new life. Look at this new Christian way of looking at things. Look at the way we get to raise our families and we get to create poetry and literature and art and, and we get to bring beauty and goodness into this broken world. I mean, it's just this amazing expression of what we're called to do. Life is renewed, right? It's all as Lord of the Rings and Tolkien says in Lord of the Rings, all things are, are set right at that point, right? So, yeah. and, and it, it's almost like the, like the 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 fall is then turned back. That's that whole idea of the new creation that we get to be part of. And but it starts with the gospel and the salvation. And then it you know in the reform tradition, I used to teach our twenty something people. It's it always goes like this: it's guilt, grace, gratitude. We experience guilt, then we experience we're given the grace, and then we live in gratitude our whole wow. lives as a service to God in a beautiful sacrifice of, of worship. Yeah. Amen. And that's the gospel. Thank you for sharing that. You know, as, as of, so as I've read your book, here, here's kind of some thoughts that I'm having, because on one hand, you're going to have people that will read it and say, okay, this connects the dots, right? And this, okay, this makes sense of what's happening in culture. Think of different people. We, we brought on Mike Bird a couple months ago. He argues specifically for secular culture and that that's an ideal Christians should strive for. Um, 
I think of, you know, some of my African-American friends who would uh, argue heavily that the founding of America was founded in a very wrong way, right? And so, obviously, I don't want to get into all these different, you know, rehash these debates again. But at the end of the day, if we have a broad circle of Christian friends, we have people in kind of slightly different theological camps that have quite different views, whether it's politically, of, of how to fix what's wrong, specifically, let's say, in, in America. Um, how, so you're in California, uh, not exactly the, the conservative hotbed, and so to speak. How do you engage with people that have a very different, uh, specifically Christians, that have a very different view of how to fix what's wrong in our culture? How do you engage with people like that? Yeah, I mean, there's there's a couple ways you can do that. I mean, you you either depending on who the person is, sometimes they're going to gravitate towards an agreement on what's wrong. You know, they're going to see it, but they may not. Um, but then some people you're going to need to to talk to about and actually jump to the end and say, you know, this is what the vision is. This is what the best of of our country was when it was rooted in law. Um, you know, at the end of the book, I talk about how the, the nation was founded, uh, but it, but there was an incomplete founding in the sense that we still had slaves. And, but every step along the way, when we ran into a problem, we always appealed back to the founding and law and order and, or what the founders called ordered freedom. And so you see that with Frederick Douglass um, in the abolitionist movement, right? And then when, when we go through the Civil War and, and Lincoln talks about the need to you know, kind of refound America on the founding principles, we only get so far. And then unfortunately the South moves back into Jim Crow. And then it takes the civil rights leaders in the sixties to, to appeal back to the founding. Again, we always go back to the ideal because it's, because it was so well balanced in the ordered Liberty of, of natural law and this grounding. And we're always appealing back the problem since the fifties. And this is what we started this conversation was, was we've lost the grounding, we've lost the glue, we've lost the thing to appeal back to. And what's happened a lot with a lot of the movements in the last two or three years is the more the, the, more the elites in our culture can destroy the ideal of the founding and the more they can say it's evil, we don't want to go back there. We have nothing, nothing to appeal to except for raw power. And so this is the first generation really where we can't go back. There's no going back. It, no, we can't appeal because it's been delegitimized so much that if you even bring up the founding, you're a racist. Well, because it's some a little, of them, it, you know what I mean? Yeah, well, it's a little bit to this degree. So if you destroy something, and again, I, I've had so many conversations with people that have slightly different perspectives. So I want to be gracious because I, I know I'm not, you know, you know, sharing their views probably adequately here. But the the pro one issue I have is if you go in and you destroy, okay, let's blow the whole system up. Like, right. And this happens in so many different ways, not just with America, whether it's churches, um, cultures we've come out of, so forth. Let's yeah. blow the system up. The problem is, is that you need something to fill that void. And that's always where hungry power leaders, whether it's, yeah. you know, we can talk from a, a high culture level, but then also just uh, in churches, right? You blow up a church or a denomination and say, this is terrible. We've done it all, all wrong. Well, someone's going to come in and fill that void. And a lot of times I've seen that. Um, that's just a new leverage for power because a group comes in and says, we'll fill this void, right? <laughs> and, yeah, no, and you're, you're absolutely right. New, I mean, new law. That's right. Yeah. And, you know, we saw what happened. We see that. We saw what happened in the French Revolution. We saw that in the Russian Revolution. I mean, it's why the great Dutch statesman, uh, Abraham Kuyper, called his part of the anti-revolutionary party because he always he knew that when you're the revolutions almost always end in more bloodshed. You know, a couple of years ago, we took our kids to Cuba because we wanted them to just see the island and then see the battle that's been going on there for for generations. But we, we had a chance to study the Cuban Revolution. And the, the goal in the 1950s before Castro took over was to re return to a constitution that looked a lot actually like the U.S. Constitution. And that was the goal. But unfortunately, the one that came out on top was Castro. And what he did is then, as soon as he got in, he had promised people he would restore the Constitution. He just destroyed it and took over. And then the next two years, he put every one of his opponents against a brick wall and shot them. There were thousands of people shot and tens of thousands put in jail because they spoke out against it. 
And generally what happens is those who have been oppressed, if they can't appeal back to a grounding that's higher than them, that the revolution, once they get power, they will, they will abuse that power worse than the oppressors they took over from. And that's why it's very important that we, we regain the best of what brought us together and held us together for years and continue to reform it, continue to refine it. Um, but there are people who think we were lost, that we're never going to get back there because uh, it's, already, it's, it's already too late. And I say at the end of the book, I just I can't give up hope. I know we're out of time here. Um, let's end with this. Unless, Dave, any th last thoughts you want to add in here? No, I don't want to just cut you off. Okay. Um, okay. We, you wrote a whole book, In Search of Deep Faith. I've got young kids, uh, five, three, and one. Dave's got young kids. Um, you know, the importance of, of you took your family on a journey, as I understand it, kind of around um, in Europe especially, mm -hmm. um, understanding the roots of what our faith comes from. Um, when you think of raising kids in the environment that we are in today, uh, what's some key things that parents should be doing? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, I, one of the things that we did over that year, which was kind of a, a writing sabbatical, we were, you know, we spent six months in Oxford and then six months traveling around the European continent and in search of 10 of the great heroes of my faith, right? We kind of wove it together into their stories and our stories and one of the things that we did is before we went to any of the locations, and this all can be done, you don't need to go to the locations necessarily, is we read all the books, mm. you know? So if we were studying C.S. Lewis for a month, we read as many of the Narnian Chronicles as we could. We read other things that he wrote, and that became kind of the discussion point, right? So if we were studying Bonhoeffer, we looked for children's books on Bonhoeffer. We did Corey Ten Boom, so we read The Hiding Place with our kids. And, you know, it just so help, helped that we were able to then walk through Ravensbrook concentration camp where she and her sister Betsy were, but it all can be done. And I think what you're trying to do with kids is read to them about the best parts of the truth, the beauty and the goodness, the very heart of Christianity um, so that they're absorbing it from a young age, right? So that they're, they're getting it so that when counterfeits come, they recognize them as counterfeits and yeah. whatever those counterfeits are or those false strong gods that I talk about in cold civil war, they know that they're, they're it's not right. Um, yeah. And, and they, they, it's their, their foundation is really rock, rock solid. So that would be for me the, the best advice I could, I could give. Great books, deep church in search of deep faith, especially if you've got a family, I'd encourage you to pick that up. Cold civil war, his latest book, uh, Jim Belcher. Thank you so much for joining us today. Absolutely. My pleasure. Well, I hope you enjoyed that. Jim Belcher, just a fascinating conversation. I'm actually going to be out in his area in Pasadena. I'm flying out there for a little church conference, so I'll be out there this week. So in his neck of the woods, as they say. Uh, but if you enjoyed that, uh, send me an email, Ezra at themondaychristian.com. If you got lots of comments, concerns, or hate mail, uh, Dave at themondaychristian.com. That works as well. Anyways, I'll talk to you all again next week. Thank you for listening to the Monday Christian Podcast. To support our vision and find new ways to put your faith into action throughout the week, visit themondaychristian.com. That's themondaychristian.com.